Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers, and soon to be able to be signed by some of our favorite retailers. Yeah, we're going out to do some book signings. We'll tell you more about that in a minute. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, and on today's episode, we're going to hit your feedback. We're going to go to the pub, talk about some beer news. We're even going to go into the brewery and talk a lot about brewing and some reasons why we're brewing. And then in the lounge, we're going to be talking to my good friends at Trademark Brewing Company. You just heard them the other day in one of the Brew Files episodes where we did a collaboration with them. This was actually taped before that other uh, collaboration interview. We just got backlogged. So now (laughs) you get to actually meet the guys behind Trademark Brewing. Yeah, cool story with them too, man. And I've known Sterling for a long time, and he's been making a transition into, into this place. He's got a beautiful facility, and when I interviewed him, I think they'd been open for about three weeks at that point. And their beers were killing it. They were in clean, crisp, tasty beer mode with no flaws I could detect, which, as anybody can tell you, for a brewery that's three weeks old, is a freaking miracle. But uh, before we get into all of that, we're going to hear a message from our sponsors. So please stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, organizers of Learn to Homebrew Day, a nationwide celebration of homebrewing held every year on the first Saturday of November. To find a brew site near you or to host your own Learn to Homebrew Day gathering, visit homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody. Before we get going on today's episode, we have a few announcements to make, and Drew's going to start off by telling you about the new episode of The Brew Files. Yeah, so last week's episode was episode 73 of The Brew Files, and we talked about, well, how to pinch pennies while making beer and not pinch your beer quality. So not trying to maximize, you know, or minimize, really, the cost per pint, but just how to be more economical and sensible or something. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, beer doesn't have to be as cheap as you can make it, but you also shouldn't be wasting money on it. So that's kind of what we try to help you do. Yeah, I already waste enough money. So there we go. <laughs> you certainly do. And uh, we mentioned earlier that we have a couple book signings coming up. The first one is going to be in Seattle on 
October 26th, just a few days after this episode comes out. From 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., we're going to be at Micro Homebrew in Kenmore, Washington, run by our buddy Tony Oshner. Uh, we're going to be brewing with dear, dear friend Annie Johnson. We're brewing the Pilpazan I mentioned. She's picking a Pilsner Grist. I'm picking uh, American IPA hops, and Drew is picking a Saison yeast. We'll see what that comes out to be. We're going to be doing some recording there, uh, you know, and uh, then at 5 p.m., we move over to Cairn Brewing, and we're going to be there from 5 to 6.30 or probably longer once we start drinking and forget what time it is. Uh, we're going to be talking to people, having a beer with people, uh, answering some questions. Annie's going to be there again. So I hope you guys make it by one or the other to come by, say hi, try and stump us with a question. Uh, again, that's Micro Homebrew in Kenmore, Washington from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Karen Brewing from 5 to 6.30. And the date again is Saturday, October 26th. We hope we see you there. Yeah, And then uh, next week, I'm hijacking Denny to come to L.A. Hooray! So, so on November 2nd, we're actually going to be doing... At least one book signing at my local homebrew shop, the Home Beer Wine Cheesemaking Shop in Woodland Hills. You can come by. You can get book signed. More details as we actually get the details. But then Denny and I are going to be going and hitting a party later that night. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. And don't forget, if you can't come to one of our book signings, you can always support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, BrewSwag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's a great organization called Chat with Champs, which helps kids who are going through cancer treatments by connecting them with people they can talk to, uh, champions, as it were. They have a number of ways they can do that. There's walkie-talkies, all kinds of stuff. But the idea is that these kids... Uh, have a little bit of support for a really, really rough time in their life. And, you know, let's face it, kids with cancer, there isn't much worse than that. So please uh, help us, help them, click the Patreon link, and throw us a couple bucks we can pass on. Indeed, and uh, our, one of our parts of feedback here is going to be about charity. So let's go ahead and get to your feedback. feedback. And Denny. You want to read the first piece? Yeah. Uh, you know, if you think back, our last charity that we helped out was uh, Wings of Rescue, uh, volunteer pilots who fly dogs from uh, shelters where they could be euthanized to no-kill shelters. And you guys helped us raise over 1100 bucks for Wings of Rescue, which is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we got a real nice letter from them that I I'd like to read to you. On behalf of Wings of Rescue, I wanted to reach out personally to say thank you for your podcast's contribution of $1,133. These flights save lives, and we truly couldn't do this work if it weren't for our amazing donors like you. Experimental Brewing is a super neat podcast. I love being super neat, don't you? <laughs> I, I, th I think I'd rather be super neato. But I'll take some <laughs> Yeah. Experimental Brewing is a super neat podcast, and we are incredibly honored to have been selected to be a part of your charity drive. Thanks so much again, Denny and Drew, and all, and all you listeners. Your gift is already being put to work, making big impacts in flying our fur friends to safety. Sincerely, Bonnie S. Aguilar, Donor Relations Manager. Bonnie, yeah. it was our immense pleasure to help out, and, uh, you know, 
good on you and keep it up. Yeah, and by my recollection and uh, quick math skills, your donation has helped save another 12 dogs. So go team. Right on, guys. Thank you very much, and keep clicking that Patreon button and helping us help people. And don't forget, of course, you know we have the Patreon. We do the charity with it. We have a couple of rewards that mostly relate to questions and whatnot. But if you have ideas for things that you'd like to see in a Patreon, let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And our first piece of feedback about the show comes from Josh K. in the HA forum uh, regarding the pinning pitching episode that we just talked about in the brew files. And he says here, uh, Denny, when it comes to reusing yeast, you talked about making sure sanitation is on point. I've just been starting to do this, and I'll be using a repitch of yeast for the third time. Beyond sanitizing the mason jar, what are some other sanitation practices I should be adhering to, or what are some potential spots that contamination could occur? I know in Complete Joy of Homebrewing, Charlie recommends rubbing pouring spouts with grain alcohol and flaming them. For my process, I let the mason jar and lid sit in sanitizer for a bit, wipe the lip of the fermenter, and just poured the in the slurry left in the fermenter, and when ready, I repitched the whole amount. It was about two cups worth. Is that too much, or too little yeast, or am I on the right track? Josh, buddy, you are on the right track. I don't do the flaming stuff, because I tried that for a while, and then got lazy and stopped doing it, and I didn't see any difference. So uh, I, I just stopped doing that. Uh, also, because uh, after having a couple glass jars explode in the fridge and picking glass out of the walls of the fridge, as I've mentioned before... I've gone to using plastic containers, and I don't want to be flaming those. But you're, you're on the right track. Basically, what I do is uh, when I rack uh, the beer out of the primary, I leave a little bit of beer behind. I use that to swirl around the slurry in the, uh, in the fermenter, and I pour that into two to three sanitized half-gallon plastic tubs with snap-on lids that my homebrew shop sells uh, bulk liquid extract in. Uh, it works great. Uh, they can't explode. Uh, worst case, maybe the lid will pop up a little bit. If I'm going to be using one of those uh, in maybe, say, three weeks or so, I just pour it directly into a fermenter. Uh, if it's going to be much longer than that, I'll take a little bit out and uh, make a starter with it. Your two cups is more than you need and could lead to excessive ester development. Uh, trust your results, but I would say that you could probably split that yeast slurry three ways and be fine. There we go. So don't fret, although uh, flaming spouts and whatnot is actually proper lab technique. Yeah, and you know, and like I said, it's certainly not going to hurt uh, unless you're using plastic containers like I do, and then you don't want to be doing that. Yep. And then our next piece of feedback actually comes from a Reddit user, C.D. Greener from Ontario, who says, feel like the homebrew shop culture in the States is so different than here in Canada, at least in Ontario. One, they are few and far between, with only a few really being supply shops. The rest are more like brew-on-premise wine shops with a few old, open, oxidized bags of hops and a handful of grains and packs of USO5. I tried buying local, but after the guy said he would bring in some bulk bags for me, and then months later they were still not there, I gave up. Also... 30 cents a pound for malt? Where the heck are those people buying from? The cheapest bags I can find here are Canadian Malting or OIO 2-Row. They're only just under a dollar per pound prices, not including having to drive out of town for them. The closest bulk shop is 1.5 hours one way. So, CD wow. Greener? Yeah, I totally feel you because, I mean, yeah, here in the U.S. we've got a plethora of homebrew shops. Not all of them are high-quality homebrew shops. Some of them are, you know, hydroponic stores that have, well, homebrew on the side as a nice legal pretense 
Um, and yeah, you'll still see some of the places where uh, places are storing, you know, hops in questionable ways. But for the most part, yeah, we do have a lot uh, better than you do. Now, the 30 cents per pound uh, for malt, I actually got that once when I did a bulk buy where we actually could put together a large enough order that we got a pallet of grain directly from a grain supplier. And that's how we got our 30 cents per pound. And yeah, that was uh, that was a, a hell of a deal. I'm happy to have had it. Yeah, our club uh, does a bulk buy uh, once a year usually, and uh, I have been lucky enough to score domestic malt for as low as 25 cents a pound and actual German malt for 30 to 32 cents a pound. So, you know, it it can be done, but it depends a lot on where you live and who's around you. And who you know and, you know, how many people you can get together to buy grain or just how often you brew. Exactly. All right, next piece of feedback. The next one comes from Jeff Muse, and he has a comment about passivating stainless steel, uh, where I mentioned that I have never actually done that. Jeff says, I just listened to your latest podcast, including the discussion about passivating stainless steel. Besides the reasons you mentioned, cleaning oil off of new kit or dealing with rust where it's been cut, I have to do it every once in a while on my brew kettles. If you look in the Brewing Metallurgy Appendix of the most recent How to Brew, it states that heat can damage the oxide layer on stainless. I've read that you know this has happened because your stainless will take on a rainbow appearance. Usually when I see this rainbow, I've been overly aggressive with boiling down the first runnings of a scotch ale or with a decoction. When I see that rainbow effect on my kettles, I spritz them down thoroughly with a spray bottle of star sand and let them air dry. Rainbow gone. Jeff, that's really interesting info. Uh, my stainless brew kettle is generally a, a converted keg, so I don't have to worry about that. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll certainly keep that in mind and see what happens. Yeah, and for me, if I can get my hands on it, I always prefer to use something stronger like, say, Acid 5 from uh, Five Star. But you have to be super careful with that because that can actually hurt you. So don't be an idiot. Yeah, uh, and I am, so I'm not going to do that. Yep. And our final piece of feedback comes from Jamie Moran on Victory and Low Slash No Alcohol Beer. I live near Reading, PA, which is about an hour drive from Philadelphia. On your show, you mentioned looking for a stout by Victory called Old Horizontal, but you couldn't find it. What you probably wanted was Storm King. Old Horizontal is a barley wine, and I think they still make it. Victory used to be my go-to beer, and it was close to where I worked. Now there are so many beers to choose from. You ended up having an old Rasputin which is an excellent stout. Yes, it is, and you are absolutely right. Uh, I was thinking of Storm King. Uh, I've made that mistake before of saying uh, Old Horizontal when I meant Storm King and vice versa, Uh, but I couldn't find either one around here (laughs) anymore. Both are excellent beers. If you can find them, give them a try. And, of course, don't forget that uh, Victory has been in the news recently because they're opening up a big new pub in downtown Philadelphia. Yes, they are, and I'm looking forward to that. One of my favorite breweries. And Jamie continues to go on. He says, also, you talked about low-slash-no-alcohol beers. I was just in Philadelphia and went to Dock Street Brewing at an English Mild, which was 3.5% ABV, and it was excellent. I would love to have these types of beer available on a regular basis because I love drinking beer, but when I go out, most of the beer choices are high alcohol. And, Jamie, I think if you talk to most brewers, if you talk to most, you know, uh, home brewers or dedicated beer lovers who, you know, have invested a portion of their life into this hobby, you'll find that most of us agree about this idea that, hey, it'd be great if there was more no-slash-low-alcohol beer available. But, unfortunately, brewers are brewing what will sell, and a good portion of the marketplace wants those higher-alcohol beers. Now, my hope is that the seltzer thing and people having sort of health consciousness about what they're drinking 
may actually be the back door into us getting session nails to become a thing here in the U.S. We talked a little bit about that in one of the previous episodes. So who knows? Maybe maybe it will just come. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing more of them around than I used to. I'm hearing more people asking for them. Um, fine with me. And, you know, and curiously enough, it seems like it's the people who have been drinking beer the longest who start getting interested in the lower alcohol beers. Uh, you know, have like, you noticed that? Oh, yeah, because he's got a great point. You know, it, I like drinking beer. I don't necessarily want to get hammered. Yeah, well, and, you know, and, and it's not like I want to drink a lot of beer either. So, yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, you know, sometimes I do want a stronger beer. I just had an 8% bottom cutter the other day, uh, which is a delicious beer. But sometimes I want to pull out my 3, 3.5% American Mild and have one of those, too. Yep, and that's the reason why it's good to be a humber because you can make the beers that the market can't support. <laughs> that's right, exactly. You are your own market. So, speaking of beer, I think it's time we do something about it. I think it's time we have one. That's what I was thinking of. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life. So, please stick around. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome back, and welcome to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever in the world you happen to be. We are sitting here having a couple beers, and uh, Drew, why don't you talk about yours first? Yeah, I'm having one of my favorites in locally. It's Eagle Rock Brewing Company's Milo Oat Pale Ale, named for the son of the brewery owners, Milo. Uh, it's a 45 to 5%, very sometimes, uh, but you know, roughly 5% pale ale. With some oats in it, so a little bit silky, a little bit hazy, but not overly hopped. So it's a, you know, kind of a, a smooth pale ale that just drinks like a charm and also has my favorite brewing ingredient, oats. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, you know, I've got a beer uh, named Milo also. Uh, it's an alt beer named after one of my cats. Milo's a good name. Now, yeah. Denny, what are you drinking? 
you got something special. Yeah, I'm I'm going local too. I was uh, in at one of my favorite breweries around here called Cold Fire Brewing, and uh, Stephen Hughes, their brewer, uh, gifted me with a bottle of a beer of theirs called the Sparrow and the Crow. Uh, kind of a, a saison farmhouse base. It's seven and a half percent. It's aged with Sauvignon Blanc juice in both a fooder and a barrel. And then they hit it with a blend of their favorite Brett strains. And I don't know exactly what those are. But, man, this is a beer that has some depth to it. It is not over the top in any aspect. The flavors just integrate and meld beautifully. Uh, Shared this with the people who came over and helped us do our cider pressing that I talked about before. And we were all just sitting there raving about the beer. So... You know, I know it's local. I know it may be difficult to impossible for you to find, but if you get a chance, try this beer, the Sparrow and the Crow, or just about anything from Cold Fire, and you will not be disappointed. I don't know. I could still be disappointed. Disappointed that I can't get it all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. That would be the thing that you would be disappointed in. I'll have to get some of this down to you the next time I do a beer shipment. There you go. Or you could just pack some in your luggage for L.A. Ooh. I might do that, or you could come up here and visit me. Now, who would want to do that? All right, yeah. so let's get into the news before we uh, start to go too crazy. Uh, the great Kate over at The Takeout has uh, a new interview with Steve Grossman up uh, on the website. It's the Sierra Nevada's Brewing Company's founder, talks craft beer's past and its future relevance. And it's really, really cool because, of course, Ken's got a lot of uh, great knowledge from over time. And it was just a really great uh, chance to dig in to see what they're doing. And also talk about the fact that Sierra Nevada reclaimed their original brew house, the one that they built way back in like 1980, 81. And he, uh, they got it back from, I think it was Mad River, and they had refurbed it, and they did a video about that last year. But they're now actually, this next year, because it's the 40th anniversary of the brewery, they're going to get ready to take it around the country on a tour. So <laughs> The touring brew house, man. What a cool idea. Yeah, so it... They they got it to GABF, so it was on the GABF floor, so that's really kind of cool. And that's where it's starting, and apparently it's going to go around the country. I don't have the details of where it's going to stop. I hope to see it here in L.A. because Ken's got a longtime L.A. association. And so it'll just be kind of nifty to see. But he also talks about like where he, th- where he thought craft beer was going to go when he started this thing and where it is now. And, and you know, the things have changed in the market. And so I think the biggest thing that you get is that, I think he's just plain out surprised at how how much craft beer has taken over. Yeah, it, it really sounded like that. You know, he sounded like he just didn't expect it at all. But, man, uh, it, it's great. They were there at the beginning. Their beers are just beyond reproach quality-wise. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to beer camp there maybe like eight or ten years ago and got to actually brew in their pilot brewery, which was a a killer experience. And I really gained an appreciation for their commitment to not only their beer and their customers, but to the environment and to humanity as a whole. But as weird as that sounds, uh, it is a, a great company with a conscience that makes absolutely delicious, um, flawless beers. And uh, mm-hmm. good on you for being there for 40 years. Uh, one of the questions in this article is, what's the best advice you ever received? And 
Ken said, I've gotten several good ones. One was bring plenty of money. This is a really expensive business to get into, and that advice came from an undercapitalized small brewer who came ahead of me and eventually went out of business. Now, that's got to be Jack McCullough from New Albion. That's what I would guess, you know, because there weren't very many people around before Ken was, and, uh, you know, that's that's a good guess. But it's still good advice today to any of you out there thinking about starting a brewery. Plenty of money and a good lawyer, that's a lot more important than the beer you're making. Although they did talk about the fact that they're going to start playing with uh, making some kombuchas and wild ales and have a separate sour facility in both Carolina and Chico. Um, But at the same time, while saying that, they they said they're always going to be continuing to support their Legacy Pale Ale, Celebration, and Bigfoot. So, yay! Yeah, exactly, man. Uh, it's, It's celebration time of year, and I am looking forward to it. Oh, yeah, it is. All right, and then our our next piece of news actually comes from the the, the bigger world, yeah, bigger than Sierra Nevada. It's a a, a little legal pissing match that, that keeps going on between Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors, you know, ever since all the stuff that happened about the no corn syrup uh, ads during the Super Bowl that actually scotched the whole, hey, let's promote beer together uh, program that they're developing. Uh, the, Anheuser-Busch is now suing Miller Coors because they're saying that two of their employees have broken state and federal laws by stealing trade secrets from Anheuser-Busch and taking them to Miller Coors, where they joined. So, including the recipes for Bud Light and Michelob Ultra. And so this is a big old thing that's going on now in U.S. Federal District Court. And it is really kind of interesting. But this is just this latest salvo, just all this year, back and forth between these two companies, really just sniping at each other. So, (laughs) really kind of... Interesting, including some of the the stuff that's coming out in the the briefs. I, I find it real hard to care. I find it amusing. Uh, definitely amusing. Definitely amusing. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. And other than that, that's about all that it's good for. Well, I thought the best one was in the brief. They were talking that one of the guys apparently texted a current ABI employee to get information about some of the 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 stuff they had been doing. You know, some of the technical information while he was now working for Miller Coors. So it's like now it's not even emails. It's now it's your now it's your text messages. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I, there's so many comments I could make, and I'm not going to make any of them. So uh, this next story is about something that is near and dear to Drew's heart and palate. I'll let him dive into this one. Well, and you did send it to me because, of course, you know, hey, yeah, hey, it's true. So yeah. on Vine Pair, uh, Kate Walensky has gone through and did a whole blind tasting of six of the America's best uh, saisons, you know, the clean ones, nothing with like a big Brett character and everything else. And did no, 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 no hazy milkshake saisons, no hazy milkshake saisons, (laughs) but they, uh, you know, they decided to do six of America's best up against saison DuPont blind tasting and, you know, figure out which ones uh, came in, uh, came in what order. And, you know, it goes through and you got a uh, Holy Mountain Witch Finder from Seattle, which I'm now going to have to look for when we're in Seattle next week. Uh, Blackberry Farm, uh, one of theirs. And Blackberry Farm is, does some interesting, very clean stuff. Brewery, I'm a gang of Hennepin. I'm actually kind of surprised because I I know Hennepin was like the, st- the start for a lot of people, but uh, it just doesn't quite hit the notes for me for Saison. Uh, Stillwater Stateside Saison. Of course, Stillwater is going to be in the mix. Transmitter Brewing out of Brooklyn, New York. I have not had this, but their S9 Noble Saison came in third. And then I think probably one of the best American renditions ever since Firestone Walker discontinued Opal 
is Boulevard Brewing's Tank 7, and that came in second. And guess what was first? I don't have to guess. I knew what was going to be first when I saw the article. (laughs) Yeah. And the first was, of course, Brasserie DuPont's Saison DuPont, which is still one of the best beers in the entire damn planet. Pouring pale gold with a fine white head, the quintessential Saison had sticky weed, orange blossom, and vanilla aromas. Um, You know... And that's exactly what I found. When I was uh, in Belgium uh, a year ago, I made a point to uh, find some Cezanne DuPont because I wanted to taste it right there uh, where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I right. mean, you know, it, it can be really good here, but, geez, you know, when you get it there, it's a beer that just makes your knees weak. Well, it's and it's also interesting. Like, I, I had the same experience when I uh, did Phantom. I tried Phantom over in Belgium at the brewery. And I'm used to thinking of Phantom with sort of these very dry, uh, bready characters and, you know, a, a little bit of funk, a lot of complexity. When I had it fresh on tap over there, it was almost like a creamsicle in a way, you know, with the fruit character <laughs> that was uh, that was up front. And, and much less, you know, kind of sour, uh, light sour, uh, light funk. But, boy, that I, I went through a gallon of it that day. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Danny was about to uh, kick me off the taps, but then I oh, then I shoveled out his mush, mash done, so I think all was forgiven. <laughs> Great. So uh, basically, what it comes down to is that there are some uh, really fine saisons made here in America, but uh, according to the tasters in this uh, survey, Nenum beats the real thing. If you come for the king, you best not miss, and they all missed. Yep. So uh, you guys go out there, you get to do your own comparisons now. Uh, so hopefully you can find some good, uh, well-treated Cezanne DuPont and some of these other American Cezannes. And uh, if you do that, let us know what you think of the comparisons. Well, and I did think it was interesting that Tank 7, which is 8.5%, came in second behind the Cezanne DuPont, which is only 6.5. The Tank 7 almost is right up in that range of like my, what is probably my favorite beer in the world, which is a Vecle Bon Vu, yeah. which is 9%. Uh, so yeah. kind of a curious little uh, distinction there. I'd like to see what happens if you threw a Vec into that mix. Well, you know, yeah, that's true. I mean, and, and that Tank 7 is kind of like halfway in between those two. So at any rate, do your own Cezanne tasting. Let us know what you come up with. We're dying to hear it. You can always uh, reach us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and a couple other ways. Absolutely. And now... It's time to go to the library. Yep. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to head over to the library, and we're going to be talking about the National Homebrew Competition uh, in 2019 and get some statistics and trends from that. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Wyeast's private collection release of Global Lagers covers the gamut of styles being brewed and celebrated around the world this time of year. 2575 Kolsch 2 from Germany produces a rich flavor profile and is suitable for a range of fermentation conditions. For international and American lager styles, 2272 North American Lager provides mild maltiness and a medium ester profile. And direct from the Austrian Alps, 2487 Hellebach Lager will create a rich, full-bodied, and complex malty profile sought after in many German lager styles. These Y-East originals are available now through the end of December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com. Hey! 
This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, your source for essential brewing resources from experts. Today, there are more than 50 Brewers Publication titles in print and digital formats, exploring beer styles, brewing science, and the business of beer. Welcome back. We're sitting here in the library. It's musty and dank, all these books around us. And uh, we're going to be talking about something, not a book, uh, an article from uh, John Moorhead, the National Homebrew Competition Director. And uh, it's analyzing uh, the the trends and statistics from uh, the latest National Homebrew Comp. And it's kind of interesting in some respects. Yeah, well, and it's almost as uh, dazzling as John's suits that he wears. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, John is the one that you'll see uh, up on stage during the presentation of the awards with uh, crazy suits on. Uh, very dazzling. So he he goes through a couple different steps. One, of course, looking at, you know, there's a myth that some states have an advantage to the NHC because of the geographics, right? And looking at things, there were no advantages that he could find. Because, you know, most of it actually really comes from, you know, how much, uh, you know, how many entrants you have. So California, of course, led the way. You know, we had 585 entrants and nearly 1,600 entries. Um, and then if you look at the uh, medal wins, California ended up winning 17 of the medals. So California won 16.7 of the medals. Um, and, you know, everybody else, I mean, you, and you can see, like, you know, New York, Ohio, Arizona – Ohio and Arizona aren't even in the top five states by entry and entrant count. Yeah, but they, they still ended up winning uh, 6% of the medals actually apiece. And then Pennsylvania and Washington were right behind with 5%. So even though, it, you know, it, it ends up being scattered all over the country is kind of what you see there, right? I thought it was interesting that the article mentions that Arizona overperformed. They ranked 26th in overall entry count with 101 entries, just 1.1% of them all. But they took home 5.88% of all NHC medals, which is more than all but three other states. Well, I think that's the uh, the ash influence, the Arizona Society of Homebrewers. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they've been one of the top clubs in the nation for a while, so I would imagine that's ash, just like I would imagine a lot of the California medals come from, say, Quaff. Quaff, definitely. Every time uh, they give away the awards, Quaff is up there over and over again. Yeah, and it was also interesting to see that when they looked at uh, how many AHA members were in a state versus or a region versus how many entries they saw. Like the Mountain West actually had a one of the highest percentages of AHA membership, right? So you know, eighteen percent or so of the AHA membership is from the Mountain West. So that also includes Colorado. Big surprise. But they had less than ten percent of the entries, whereas like the Great Lakes, you know, is closer to like seventeen percent and had almost twenty percent of the entries. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we're pretty darn balanced. Uh, 
6.9% of AHA membership and 6.5% of the entries. Yep. And then if you go and you look at the the entry medals and by region, yeah, again, the Southwest, which includes Arizona and California, won 23 medals. We won nearly 20% of the medals with only 15.4% of the AHA membership. <laughs> But, man, uh, I'll tell you, the central region did really well, too, as did the uh, Mid-Atlantic. Both of them ended up with 10% of the medals won. And I have to admit that oftentimes you don't really think of either of those as being hotbeds of homebrewing. I know. But, hey, it just goes to show. Um, I also thought it was interesting to see the breakdown of styles and number of entries in the styles in comparison over the years. And uh, no big surprise, but, uh, well... IPA is still a very, very popular style, Doctor. <laughs> yep. But the most, uh, the most popular ones, the ones with the most number of entries, n- nearly hitting, you know, like you know, five hundred in some years, but uh, closer to about four hundred in the past couple of years, have been the specialty categories. Right. So uh, that fits very much into my mind with what, well, what happens with homebrewers being sort of oddballs. You know, what's interesting too is that uh, looking at these numbers. Spiced beer and smoke-flavored and wood-aged beers actually had more entries than American IPA. And yep. uh, Strong Belgians and Trappist were almost up as high. Who would have thought, huh? Well, I'm guessing we're seeing a lot of uh, we're seeing some decline in the IPA area because you can just go buy so many IPAs nowadays. <laughs> well, m- maybe. And then John also closes up with some other statistics about like how likely you are to win a medal, and he said it is very difficult to win a medal. Just over 1% of all entries win a medal. And then he's got to get his dig in here. He says, winning a medal has the same odds as the Cincinnati Bengals winning Super Bowl 54. Uh, He might be showing his uh, Steelers uh, lineage there. Um, And, you know, like, then the things like uh, Homebrew of the Year, so the winner of Best of Show in the competition, it's just barely a little better than hitting a hole-in-one. So kind of interesting to see. And, of course, now with the changes to uh, entry requirements, Ninkasi also becomes a very odd thing to, to get to as well. You know, you can no longer just shotgun a bunch of beers in there. So all in all, this article was interesting just for sort of breaking down some of what you see in the competition. And it shows, actually, that the competition itself, to me, seems fairly well-balanced, even though, you know, obviously a more populous state like California is going to have more metal, uh, metals just because we have more entries. Yeah, you know, and people are always uh, seem to be complaining about the fact that uh, California always does so well. But, you know, when you look at the numbers, it's really proportional to the uh, to the amount of entries that they put in. And again, you know, when you look at someplace like Arizona, which most people wouldn't even think about, they did really well. So. I'm not sure that uh, all the uh, the bias is as true as people seem to think it is. No, nope. and let's face it, those ash holes in Arizona, they're doing their <laughs> job. <laughs> all right, enough of the numbers. How about if we head over to the brewery and get into some beer? Let's do that. All right, we're going to head over to the brewery. When we come back, we'll be talking about what we've been brewing and uh, give you some ideas. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
the Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. sitting here in the brewery there's stainless steel there's burners going there's all kinds of cool stuff happening and drew's going to tell you about his latest saison imagine that well so you guys will remember i talked about brewing the coming in hot ipa recently you know my uh no chill ipa that i was attempting to do and i, I kept referencing i was having problems and i was fairly certain it was related to the crush it turns out it was right i posted this on facebook the other day uh where my malt mill had been crushing at, and I think the word crush is a generous word for what it was doing, versus what it, what I needed to have it doing and how I adjusted to do. Denny, how would you describe that first crush? I would describe that first crush as, did you crush that? Yeah, exactly. So what ended up happening was on the, the mill that I have, there are two little set screws or little thumb screws that are designed to hold the, the roller in place. Right, So it's a three-roller mill. These two set screws fix the position of that third roller, which is what's really doing the, the majority of the crushing. And those had come loose, and the whole mill just sort of walled out. And so, yeah, grain was going through largely uncrushed. So now I went back to you know what I know to do, which is make flour out of the sucker. So that's what we got. And yeah. my, my next batch of that false fall saison, which I named after the false fall here in L.A., where L.A. weather tends to trick you in September and October makes you think, hey, fall is here. And then two days later, it becomes 95 degrees again. <laughs> um, and so I got the crush right, and I'm really, really super happy with it. I'm calling it kind of a modern uh, a modern fall saison. So I have had a fall saison that I've done in the past, which is very much based on a scotch ale. I want to do something much more in line with my current philosophy and taste. And so this one was just uh, Idaho Pale Malts. So very nice and clean with some oat malt in there. Go figure, right? And I actually split the oat malt into two different varieties. One was just a half pound of regular oat malt because I wanted two pounds. And I had a pound and a half of Breeze's Blonde Roast Oat Malt, which they were giving out at the NHC this year. So I had a bag of this and I wanted to use it. And it's a, an interesting, it's an interesting different grain, you know, four, only four love buns. So not really dark roasty, but it has some really interesting characters of very much kind of like a cross between oat malt and golden naked oats and a little bit more of a, a caramel type thing. So I'm really curious to see what that is. Cut it down with some sugar. And then I also added in some Mecca Grey Metolius, which is their Munichish malt. 
and you know, just to give a little bit of body and got a nice like little beer. That's going to be at about six SRM, probably a little bit higher than six ABV. So somewhere between six, six, AB, uh, six and a half ABV. Um, and of course me being me, I just topped it with one hop, one hop edition of Magnum just to get the bitterness. And uh, Denny, I think you had the, the truest reaction, which was, Hey, shocker. It's got oat malt in it. <laughs> yeah, really, man. It's like I'm I'm always shocked when one of your recipes doesn't have oat malt in it. Well, I mean, it's a saison, right? I mean, it makes sense to have something like oat malt or oats or wheat in a saison. So that's sure. why it's in there. And plus, I have a lot of it, so I need to use it. Uh, plus, also, oat malt tends to go rancid if you don't use it fast enough. Uh, um, yeah, I've had that experience, unfortunately. So my hopes and my dreams for this one are going to be that I get this like really delicious toasty and chewy but not sweet fallish amber saison and i'm really looking forward to it and it'll be on tap by the time denny gets down here so yeah cool looking forward to it and then as we're recording i'm brewing another beer because why not and this time i'm actually again playing with another ingredient our friends at country malt group and great western they got us some of their brew malt uh, to play with, and their brew malt is kind of their take on the Gambrinus honey malt with a different spin. And so I'm making a fest beer, so like an Oktoberfest beer with it, with just uh, again some Idaho pills and some uh, some brew malt. Twelve pounds of the Idaho pills and one pound of this brew malt, and the wort as it's going through the kettle right now is just this beautiful color with just that one pound of malt, you know, cause it's, it comes in only at like 20 love bonds. So again, it's not a super dark malt, but the, the beer color is just gorgeous. So if the beer turns out to be as good as the color is right now, I'm going to be a very happy camper. And I'm going to do this as a fast lager. Cause I want to again, turn this around in about 10 days and it's going to be hopped with Magnum and a couple of American nobles there in the finish, just to give it a little extra spin on the beer. But I'm really looking forward to this. When I chewed on the brew malt just to give it a taste ahead of time, you know, so we always recommend people take a couple kernels, pop them in your mouth, chew them up, don't swallow, but let your saliva go to work on both hydrating the starch and also the alpha amylase start turning that starch into sweetness. It's a really interesting malt. Yeah, you know, I just used it in a beer that's, I guess, kind of halfway between a pale ale and, uh, and an IPA. I used... Uh, 11 pounds of malt, uh, the base malt was from Skagit malting, uh, up in Washington. And it's a variety that is made specially for micro homebrew, uh, where we're going to be here coming up on Saturday. And I tossed in a pound of the brew malt also. Uh, so it's what, about 8% of the, the total grain bill, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I used, uh, a lot of cryo hops. I bittered with, uh, let me see. Let me look at my notes here. I bittered with some Chinook, uh, non-cryo Chinook. And then uh, at Flame Out, I added four ounces of cryo hops, uh, uh, Mosaic, Citra, Simcoe, and Laurel uh, in there. And uh, wow, it's looking really good. I've got a bottle of carbon up right now. I'm going to have a sample taste of it today, and it's got a pound of that brew mold in it, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what that's going to be like. I know, yeah, this is some interesting stuff. And again, that's brew malt, B-R-U-M-A-L-T, and it's from Great Western. Uh, like we said, it's kind of a riff on the same idea as the honey malt, so something with some sweetness, but not with a sort of a sticky, 
uh, stickiness. And I, I actually even got some raisin characters out of it as well, which is interesting to me. Wow, that's man, I'm I'm really looking forward to tasting it because uh, I didn't chew on any. Uh, I just want to see what this beer is like. There you go. So I think that will be fun to see. And all of these beers are going to the Falcons' 45th anniversary party, which uh, Denny will be coming to me with. Uh, he's he's my date. <laughs> okay. Yep. And uh, just going to be a great time. We're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, and of course, as it as it's always wonderful to know when it gets back to being cool in the fall and you can get back into the brewery. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to be uh, trying to get in some brewing this week on the Z. I've got Grain Crushed. It's nine pounds of Mecha Grade Metolius and three pounds of the Great Western uh, Ida Pills. I haven't decided yet if I'm going ale or lager with it. So I'm thinking maybe lager. I think maybe I'll uh, use some more of that uh, Lalamon Diamond Lager yeast and some American Nobles and and see what that happens to be. Sounds good to me. Let's do this thing. <laughs> All righty. We're, yeah, right on. We're going to be brewing more. Uh, you guys, write in. Tell us what you've been brewing lately. We always like to hear that kind of stuff. So let us know. And I think it's time to move on now, huh? I think so, too. I think it's time for us to go lounge. All right. We're heading over to the lounge. Uh, we'll see you there right after these messages from our sponsors. Mecha Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecha Grade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. That's an old joke, but what the heck? We just made it again. And uh, we're going to listen to an interview that Drew did with Sterling Stefan at uh, Trademark Brewing. Huh? Pretty pretty interesting guy. Yeah, a photographer, you know, man of many trades, and you know, really just a really great brewer. And he made the very bold decision to start a brewery with a mash filter setup. Uh, we'll talk about that in the interview. It's a very cool concept. It's gaining more traction here in the U.S. Uh, because they're now making smaller versions that are available to people. So we'll be able to see more and more people using one of these things. But go listen to the interview. And if you're in the Long Beach area, you got to go check out Sterling's facility because it's gorgeous and he makes great beer. So sit down, relax, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and check out this interview with Drew talking to Sterling Stefan from Trademark Brewing. The beer that we're drinking here is the On Center? That's the On Center Hellas Lager. Right. Well, and so kind of nice to see a, a Hellas. I've, I've been talking with people over the past, I think, year and a half that 
the Hellas, at least here in L.A., seems to be a picking up trend. You know, you go to a lot of places and they'll have that on tap as opposed to like having a blonde or something. Well, I think that the I think the Hellas is what a lot of brewers want to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, not to name names, there was a brewer in here the other day from a brewery that's very, very known for their hazies mm-hmm. and uh, the type of place where lines form. Mm-hmm. And we chatted for a little bit, and I could tell very quickly that the, uh, this individual was not at all interested in talking about beer. He was just, like, cooked on beer right then. I was like, what are you drinking? Hellas. I'm like, yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so often on the podcast, we interview people, and, and we'll ask brewers, you know, what's your favorite beer to drink when you're not brewing? Mm-hmm. And the number of times we've gotten back an answer that's something like Coors or Coors Banquet or something like that. Right. I mean, it's astonishing. But at the end of the day, you think about it. You spent all day, you know, standing on a brew rig, thinking about beer, chewing on beer, all that, and it's obsessing. Like, I just okay. I just want to have a beer. Right. So, yeah, it totally makes sense. But I, I have to say, I, I really dig this. It's crisp. It's clean. It has just enough malt sweetness to it, so that it doesn't feel like just a. Uh, a very dry pills, mm-hmm. um, and just enough hop, uh, kind of a spicy hop back into it. But I could, I could totally see like going through a few glasses of these in a hurry. It's German beer drinking beer. Um, people ask me a lot what I drink the most of here, and it's actually it oscillates between this and the Session IPA, and they're almost for similar reasons. Like I want something that is thirst quenching and palatable, and you know just goes the distance. Um, you know. Versus a big chocolate coffee stout that is fantastic, but I need like to light a fire and put a smoking vest on to drink it. Well, and even with the world of hazies, I think there's there's also just that sense of uh, palate fatigue, right? You know, like I, I like an occasional hazy IPA, but at the same time, I I can't I can't picture myself sitting down all night and drinking nothing but hazies. I agree with you. I mean, they are they are a special treat, I think. Mm-hmm. And from a sensory standpoint, I always feel like they're kind of overwhelming and really interesting and and you know we drank a lot of different beer here just you know we drank our friends beers we drank any beer we can get just to see what's going on and, and mm-hmm. stay on top of things and the world of hazies it's still as a brewer it still like screws with my head like mm-hmm. all the things that go in there that shouldn't be there or how they get defined because it's still a category i think it's really undefined mm-hmm. like if you look at some of the beers the the attenuation is like non-existent mm-hmm. and i've had I can think of two different beers that would both be categorized as juicy, hazy IPAs. And I took out the Anton Parr, and one was like 1025, mm-hmm. and the other was 1007. Yeah, it's such a wide variability, which is, I think, one of the things that's interesting, but also sort of challenging, because you never know what you're going to get on the other side. Totally. And that's the part that I found most interesting. The 1025 beer, I drank about half of it. I was like, wow, this is really good. Um, but then I have a thing about attenuated beers. I just I'm, I don't have a sweet tooth at all. And then once I started to shift and pick up on that, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is like incredibly sweet. Now, did you did you pick up on that before you measured the the gravity? Yeah, I, I in my palate, there's like one little tripping point that I can just detect sweetness, and it was on the back of the palate because it still had enough. It actually had enough bitterness to offset the sweetness. Mm-hmm. But then once I got that, I'm like, wait, like. <laughs> Why do I feel like I've been drinking soda pop? When you start feeling your lips glue together? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, I'm going to have ants growing up, you know, crawling on my face in a moment. Well, all right. So you said you like to talk about beer. You like to think about beer and, and try all sorts of different beers. But what we haven't said to people in the audience is, where are we and who are you? 
All right. My name is Sterling Stefan. I am one of the founders and the brewer at Trademark Brewing located in Long Beach, California. Yeah, and to listeners of the podcast, I know we've been in Long Beach a, a lot recently between Beer Lab and Acoustic and a couple of other places that you might think I'm, I live somewhere nearby. I don't. I live about as far away from Long Beach as you can get with still being in L.A. Well, L.A. is the biggest market in the world, I think, <laughs> geographically speaking. Yeah, I just, I'm very fortunate that the 710 just drops yeah, right exactly. in there. Exactly. No, it's very convenient. Just go south. Point towards the ocean, son. You'll be there. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk. I mean, okay, first, you guys have only been open, what, a week now? Uh, or, so or we two? did our grand opening a week ago today, and we did just about two weeks of soft opening. We had... You know, you plan and plan and plan, and when the opportunity, we thought we would have soft opened five times before, and when the opportunity cropped up, we were like, we're opening. We kicked open the doors. Yep. Uh, you, you don't wait anymore. Well, I mean, how, how long was it from the time that you guys got your hands on this building to the time that that door kicking happened? So I'll back that up and answer it a different way. We found the building, I want to say, towards the end of 2016. Mm-hmm. We signed the lease in April of 2017. Uh, the building needed a fair amount of work to be performed by the landlord, abatement-type issues, things like that. That took around eight months. Yeah. Welcome to lead paint and asbestos. Right, exactly. I mean, it, and, and it's, it's a building that was put up in the late 30s, early 40s. And then we did our construction, which took about 13 months. And, you know, certain things could have been faster or slower, but... I can't tell you how many times you would open a wall or touch something. You're like, oh, all right, we got to talk about this one. What do we do now? Um, you know, nothing too dramatic, but just the little things that throw things off. Well, and I mean, the building is gorgeous. So, I mean, I remember when you guys first started talking about this because you guys were coming up to the Falcons meetings and hanging out and drinking beer with us, and, and you were talking about, yeah, we're going to open up a brewery, et cetera. And I, Walking in here, I was surprised at how massive a place this is. It looks bigger than it is, though. Um, you know, don't get me wrong; it's not a small building, and it mm-hmm. is certainly larger than we were really looking for, and kind of what we had planned on. Uh, but it does have 32-foot ceilings and skylights, which makes it look probably two or three times as large as it is. Uh, well, it, yeah, it certainly doesn't feel cramped, and we're in a second-story office right now, overlooking everything. Right. I mean, there, yeah, it's got mezzanine space and things like that. So there's, you know, it's it's got some room to to grow, and you know, we joke about roller skates to get around. Um, we weren't looking for this, but when we walked in the building, I so I came into the building, I found it on LoopNet. I was like, I gotta go see this place, and I called. Didn't even wait for my broker. I said, like, I want to go see this. And at the time, it was a super shady body shop. <laughs> and this building has been automotive since inception. Yeah, well, yeah, your your front door is basically a big garage roll-up. Exactly. Door. Like, when we took the building, that was a steel roll-up, and before that, it was a janky aluminum roll-up. Yep. Um, so I came in here as a body shop. The place was in shambles. It was totally up to no good. There was a Ferrari in the front windows that they mysteriously couldn't find the keys for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not suspicious at all. Uh, but we saw the bones, and we're like, somehow, some way, we have to find a way to make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, enter six months of lease negotiations and figuring out a way to make everything work, you know, from a financial standpoint, and then planning how to use the space. Because that's the other part, too. You go into it, and you're like, well, I'm going to get a building, and it's going to be a rectangle. And this is how I'm going to lay out my perfect little rectangle. It's free of obstructions, mm-hmm. and, the, and the doors are going to be exactly where I anticipate them to be. And then you just throw all of that right out the window. <laughs> yeah, reality, as Denny likes to say, quoting Kartok, uh, reality often astonishes theory. Yeah, exactly. 
And but I mean now you're here and uh, yeah you talked about the skylights. I mean you have this big flood of natural light into this place. It's absolutely gorgeous, and this nice little barrel ceiling that's uh, little, but this this nice gorgeous arc of a the ceiling there that you, yeah really does make the space feel very open. Yeah, and so that was all encased in the white light paint that was peeling, and when that was sandblasted off, uh, so this is a combination of sequoia redwood and dug fir. So if you wonder why there's fewer sequoia redwoods, it's because of buildings like this. Um, and we actually, when we demoed the place, we didn't actually have to demo very much, fortunately. Like, all the lead was taken out by the landlord and all the plaster that had mm-hmm. to go. But the few walls we did have to take down, we actually kept that wood. Mm-hmm. Because this is irreplaceable, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we reused it. So downstairs, I call them box chandeliers. We built those boxes and then hung the festoon lights in it and tried to kind of... I don't want to say upcycle, but just you know, embrace the place for what it was and, and make that go as far as possible. Okay. Well, it, it's it's absolutely gorgeous, and I'm glad that you guys are open. But let's get to the meat of things. When did you first discover good beer? <sighs> the story of beer. So I have distinct memories. I have a few distinct memories. One is at uh, Monk's Cafe in Philly. Gorgeous place. Those those memories are very fuzzy. Um, <laughs> and ironically, I, I drank a lot of Belgian beer, but I also drank a lot of San Diego beer there. Mm-hmm. And then another story with the same group of people is actually in Sebring, Florida. I went to the 24-hour race in Sebring, mm-hmm. and there is a small liquor store outside there. And this is just you know a, a bunch of guys going to watch a car race, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but this was a group that drank good beer. Mm-hmm. And that was another little facet of it. And then as a kid, actually, a lot of Sierra was always around the house. So if you kind of look at those different steps as they went through, um, you know, Sierra, Stone, some of the Belgian stuff, uh, that was kind of my, my entree into beer. And it was sometime in probably the mid-2000s is when things really kind of doubled down for me in terms of like, a, you know, I had a regular group at Father's Office every Thursday. We had another group on Tuesdays oh, yeah. in Studio City. Yep. Um, and that was a favorite. And... I just, I don't know, I dove in head first. And, you know, I learned what my taste was, and I learned what else was out there. Uh, and then sometime in the late 2000s, I was actually gifted a uh, how to brew visit, I guess, at mm-hmm. the Culver City shop. Yep. Uh, no longer there. I, I know, yeah. Um, Greg and Kevin. Um, sorry, guys. Um, maybe I had that one out. But um, so I did the the Culver City How to Brew story and, you know, sat in, threw a half and vice in and had the whole talk about how many hops we're going to put in. It was like the salt bay, just dropping in a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, I went into it with a measure of reluctance because I have a track record of getting into a hobby and just going balls out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't really know. And then I was gifted the How to Brew kit and I made a Dunkelweiss. Mm-hmm. in my bathtub, in a water bath to keep it controlled because I lived in the valley at the time. Um, actually, uh, Sean at Woodland Hills mm-hmm. helped me with that recipe because I'm like, I know what I want to do, and I had a, a framework of what I was going for. And um, he gave me some commentary. He's like, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe bump this up or adjust this and that, that and the other. And this is why you support your local homebrew shop. Absolutely not. It's a wealth of knowledge. There's no question about that. Um, in fact, actually, in opening this place, when we needed supplies, there were a handful of times we drove from Long Beach to Woodland Hills to pick up yeast hops, odds and ends, and because that's the right thing to do. Well, you're not the only brewery I know that's done that, so... <laughs> oh, well, yeah. No, I've heard stories of, of local breweries cleaning out yeast supplies. And hops. Yeah. No, we, we've only done it for pilot batches, I will say. Um, 
so we, I made the Dunkelweiss. That was very successful. And then the, I don't remember the next two beers I made after that, but I remember they were horrible failures. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, I, I always tell people that's a pattern. Your first beer is always amazing. Yeah. And then almost invariably your second beer, something goes pear-shaped, yeah. and it comes out terrible. It happened with me. Like, my very first beer was uh, the Chico Pale Ale Kit okay. at uh, home, home, brew wine, home Beer Wine Cheese Making. And then the next one, I was like, oh, I'll do a red, because I was really into reds at the time. And that one became phenolic, infected, and the only thing I could ever use it for was making beans. Oh, jeez. You know? Yeah, so, well, yeah, yeah. An, an inauspicious start to the brewing career. Right, exactly. So I had the same thing. I had this Dunkelweiss that was amazing, two other beers that I've, I've forgotten about deep in my memory that were terrible. And then the beer after that was, you know, this is early home brewing, so you're still thinking in the clone mentality. Um, which there's nothing wrong with. There's a lot of great beer out there, but mm-hmm. I made a, a torpedo clone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I did do because I don't like sugar is I dried it out a little more and made a few adjustments there. But that beer was really, really successful. So torpedo extra extra IPA. Exactly. Yeah. And I served that at a party with a group of friends and um, with only a little bit of hot particulate in the bottle, um, and that was extremely popular and then from there I, I started to set into a pattern where I was brewing more and more and more and at one point I moved and the place I moved into there was a laundry room closet and I was staring at staring at the laundry room closet like wow this is the perfect place to put some wire racks <laughs> and how many carboys can I fit in here I'm like this is brilliant I'm going to do this and I did it and then I realized that this place was built in 1929 had zero insulation mm-hmm. and this isn't going to work so like a week or two later, I'm walking out of Home Depot with an air conditioning unit that's earmarked solely for the fermenting closet. And mm-hmm. it was like right then I was like, oh, we've crossed a line here. Like there's no going back. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, in these days, of course, you got homebrewers, they can go buy glycol chillers for oh, yeah. conical fermenters. Yeah, conical. Um, like I didn't even know what that word was at that time. Um and so I went down that path, brewed more and more, and then eventually, uh, with the encouragement of some friends, uh, you know, they said, you know, you should really consider doing this, you know. And, mm-hmm. and I think you hear that a lot when you're giving away free beer. Oh, of course. And if it's good beer, you're going to hear it more. But, like, what's the definition between good and bad? And what's their palate really like? And how much do they really believe in you? And, and how hard do you want to actually work? Right, exactly. And I've always owned a, a business of my own, so I was kind of familiar with what it meant to do those things, but this is a whole other level. There's no question about that. Um, but we had the friends that encouraged us and said, you know, you should, well, this was me at this time. It was before I'd even met uh, my business partner and wife, Alana. And you should go do this. You should go do this. I was going to ask if, if she was around when the air conditioner showed up just for the fermentation. No, closet. I'll get to that story in a second. That's a better story. Um, but, the, you know, my, my group of friends, you should do this. And one of them said, like, if you want to do this, I would like to invest in this venture. And I said, well, that's very flattering. And I didn't really think much of it. And like a week later, he says, so what do you want to do? And this is an individual of modest means. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like, I would, I think I'd be comfortable doing this. And I was like, wow, that's very substantial, you know? And I was, I was like, okay, maybe I should really think about this because people are not just, you know, kissing my butt for free beer. They're if somebody's willing to put down a chunk of money. Right. So that's when it kind of shifted gears. And that was really close to when I met Alana. Mm-hmm. So first date material with Alana. We're talking about our backgrounds and doing all that usual BS. And like, oh, you know, do you have siblings? What are your hobbies? And you're just like... It's do you like dogs? Right, exactly. <laughs> and 
she tells the story better than I do, but I said, oh, well, there's something you should know about me. And she's like, oh, crap, what's this going to be? I said, I'm really into beer. Um, I homebrew, and I do this, that, and the other. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure I had some patter that went along with it because I wanted her to know this. You know, I, we, we got on really well from the start. And a, that was about three days after I had ordered what became my pilot system and was the beginning of the end. <laughs> so three weeks after that first date, was the last time I parked my car in the garage. I had ordered the Brewmagic Sabco pilot mm-hmm. system. I went on Craigslist and bought a bunch of apartment refrigerators for 200 bucks each. I bought the brew pies so I could ferment everything within like a tenth of a degree Fahrenheit, right. which is better than I can do here even. Um, and from that point on, ironically, we were making a lot of beer, but ironically we were pitching more beer because everything we made was about you know striving towards perfection, I think. Mm-hmm. And getting a little bit more extreme with everything that we made in terms of you know the precision factor, and Alana helped me brew uh, a coffee chocolate stout which we called Ten Hour because the mash, our my brew day then was about five hours, mm-hmm. and that took ten hours to get through because we had a horribly stuck mash. There weren't enough rice holes in the planet to fix this beer, and it ended with me putting chunks of mash into a muslin bag and squeezing it and scalding my hands. I think we've all been there. Yeah, we we have, um, but and that. That and, was very successful. Well, I was going to say, it's successful enough, it's still on the menu. And it hasn't changed very much. I mean, that was the thing. is that like We made a few adjustments for the equipment here, but otherwise it's pretty much stayed true to style, or true to our style, I guess. But that was a beer that's kind of part of our story mm-hmm. uh, and going down this path. Well, and I love the fact uh, that Alana's downstairs right now slinging beers to customers. Oh, no, this, uh, you know, this place could not exist. There's no chance this ever would have happened without her. Um, we have, if you're making a little Venn diagram, we have this perfect little overlap where we have common views on important matters, but our skill sets are different enough that it's like, hey, for Alana, she comes from hospitality. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, how do you want to do the scheduling? I was like, I'm going to let you do that because you know everything <laughs> about that and you go run with it. And she has the ability to run in front of house like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. And I come at it from kind of more of a small business operations. Like at one point I had a couple offices and, you know, two dozen employees and things like that. So for me, you know, running a larger team and running a production environment was something I was pretty comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So we kind of like look at the wall that separates the brewery and the tap room as like the DMZ and I'm responsible for the back of house and she's responsible for the front of house. So I make sure beer happens and she makes sure beer goes away. So in other words, it's a, a rock solid partnership. It's, Better than that, but it, I mean, we are—we're not moms and pops, but it's definitely a husband and wife team. There's no question about it. That's awesome. So, let's get into the into the beer then. Sure. You know, and, now, and now that we understand that you had a the, a really good obsessive journey in into beer, so my my favorite question to ask brewers all the time on the podcast is: omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. Ooh. I feel like you can just throw a bunch of words out there that are overused and, but all very meaningful between balance and drinkability and approachable. I think when we made the lineup here, though, we were looking at the beers that we enjoy making, looking at the beers that may also be popular that are outside of our normal things that we might stock our fridge with or order when we go out. And then we also tried to consider the environment that we're in. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier the, the Hellas versus a blonde thing. We have a blonde on. Yep. And it's selling like crazy. 
um, the the West Coast, the Hellas, and the Blonde are probably our top three right now. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the environment, we're in, in you know our little strip of Long Beach right here, um, we have an audience, a portion of which is not really exposed to craft beer, mm-hmm. and they're interested in it. They're like, oh, I can come into this cool environment, and this is different from me, and I can order a beer that's been made in the tanks I can see right in front of me. Um, but they may not be used to something that might be more aggressive on the palate or mm-hmm. something that might be, on the other end of the spectrum, very delicate on the palate. They're, they're looking for something kind of middle of the road that feels like something familiar but more. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, it was really important that we have a broad portfolio that also was kind of tuned in to the different needs of a few different groups from the people that really know you know beer inside now and, and then the obsessive beer nerds like us and a lot of people listening to this podcast to the people that are walking in and we want them to be welcomed into the fold mm-hmm. and that was really important to us because that's the one thing that i think we've all witnessed at some i call them accounts but bars whatever mm-hmm. if you walk in and you don't know what you're ordering you may not be treated very well. It can be really intimidating. I, I can't imagine where you're thinking about, and it wouldn't it all be in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. No, there's all sorts of problems. So <laughs> for us, it was like, how do we make this an environment that everyone feels really welcome and feels like home? And that kind of you know, ties into how we set up the tap room in terms of trying to make the tap room experience a little bit elevated, which isn't a snooty thing. It's it's a it's a hospitality thing. Make everyone feel like this is a place they're comfortable and they want to be in. Yeah, I was going to say, it's... Oh, you guys! It's very evident that you guys put design thought into how everything's set up down there. You know, it's it's clean, it's it's modern esque, right? It's got a little bit of that IKEA feel to it in terms of just like the clean blonde wood, but it does. It feels still very warm. It feels very welcome. And it's not very super structured, but it's also not like the the typical tap room experience where you're walking in. It's like, oh yeah, somebody just put it, put down a couple tables and a couple chairs, and there's the bar. Right, and that's we put a lot of thought into that. It's like, how do we make this? Let's use you know slightly nicer light fixtures if we can swing it. Um, we got very lucky to find a furniture maker who's local to us that did incredible work and did stuff with I beams and stuff like that that kind of fit the building. Right, um, and having bathrooms that people want to use, you know, like you know, it's the small details that make the tap room a nicer experience, and that's what brings people into the fold. So the front of house training, and that goes back to Alana. Um, that's the big experience. And then tying it all together with beer that will appeal to different groups and satisfy their needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then staying plugged into those people and making sure we listen to them. That's all part of the, the brewing philosophy, I think. Well, I was going to say, so far, I mean, outside of the, the 10 hour, like looking at the list, I mean, there's a lot of focus on sort of paler beer and like, you know, sort of more approachable beer. And then you get into that back half, which is all the IPAs. Yeah, some of that has to do with how things come together. Like when we first did our our first, um, you know, there's you can see over there the the the, the beer list. We've got a, a mm-hmm. bunch of post-its of things that we want to do, and we started with something that was probably three times that size. And it's like, okay, we're going to do the first turn of the cellar. We've got six tanks. What do we do? Mm-hmm. And we knew we wanted to touch on certain things. And thinking back, uh, the Hellas, the Kolsch, um, the Cezanne. And the hazy, and I think the ten hour, the coffee chocolate stout. Those were all first turn batches. Mm-hmm. We wanted to have, you know, ten hour in our little portfolio is a classic. Uh, the hazy is something we're pretty comfortable with, and it, you know, we knew it would be a big hit. And it was very important to us personally to do the Hellas and the Kolsch, just because we love those beers. Um, 
And then you go into, okay, what, what yeast do we need for this? And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And getting all those different strains going for a new brewery is really difficult. Yeah. Uh, um, and, yeah, juggling. I mean, you've got a lot of veteran breweries that don't want to juggle more than, say, two. Oh, yeah, and we, and we didn't get successive generations out of most of our first batches. So that, yeah. was, that, that hurt. Um, but it's part of it. We wanted, we wanted to come to the party with a little bit more than just everything made with Cali um, mm-hmm. and maybe one other strain. Uh, and then, and then that having been said, you plan everything, and then just you know you have to adapt. Life happens. Life happens. Your 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 cellar controls aren't going to work. Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna make some adaptations here. <laughs> like, what can we do warm? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, looking at where the cellar is going now, we've got a, uh, a Berliner Weiss, we've got a Mexican Lager, we've got we just brewed a coconut porter yesterday, mm-hmm. or it's a porter now. It will be coconutty in about a week or so. So. Uh, we've got a, uh, a kind of hoppy wheat that's coming on deck, mm-hmm. and then we're going to empty some tanks later next week and brew after that. Yeah. So, think, think about it. You know, part of the reason why I don't mind coming down to Long Beach is, in comparison to Pasadena, you guys are brewery rich. Right. So, what Long Beach is now up to what is it nine or ten breweries? It's somewhere in that neighborhood. I've right? lost track because there's a really broad spectrum. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some more corporate outlets mm-hmm. that have a lot of um, foundation and, and mm-hmm. deserve respect, and then there's some places that are, you know, making a couple hundred barrels a year, and and that's their their world, and there's a lot in between. Yeah, I was gonna say it, we've been to on the podcast. We've been to Long Beach Beer Lab twice just mm-hmm. to talk the experimental stuff that Levy's doing there. Yeah. Um, but now that you've got this many breweries in this area, and you, you guys being the new kid on the block, what do you think differentiates you from the other breweries? Like, wh- what's your what's your your selling point? Well, it depends who the customer is. I mean, that's that's really what it boils down to. I think there's, you know, we do have a few things going for us that. You know that were part of our objectives from the beginning. Um, we were not interested from the start. We were not interested in being a brew pub, and we wanted to be able to send beer out to the world. Mm-hmm. So, as it stands right now, we're the only production scale brewery in Long Beach. Uh, it's really our objective to make the best beer possible, make it the best way possible, make beer that Long Beach is proud of, and share it with the local market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not looking to take over the world. We're not, we don't have any crazy ambitions. We're not going to call out other breweries or do stupid stuff like that. We just want to make good beer, but we want to be able to, we want it to be accessible to our, to our customers. You know, that means that, you know, we're fortunate enough to get into some of the restaurants mm-hmm. and bars that are outside of our 10 block radius that they frequent. Mm-hmm. That, that would be great. Yep. And, uh, you know, and we want to get into package beer and do cans and things like that. So when we found this place, it was bigger than we wanted, but we knew it had the legs to go the distance and to do something like that. So when you look at the other breweries in Long Beach, and I really think throughout L.A. County, mm-hmm. the vast majority are making probably less than 1,000 barrels a year. Yeah, almost everybody's focused on, I've got my tap room, that's where I'm making my money. Right, and, and it's true. I mean, that's without the tap room, this place wouldn't exist. Yep. Um, but I think there are a lot of customers, you know, it, it, you know, Drew, when you are, there's no beer in the house or you're going to someone's place and you have to go to a big box, mm-hmm. what do you buy? Usually something like a Sierra Nevada or... Right. Yeah. It's a brand you trust, and you know it's going to be a good product. But if you had the option of buying something mm-hmm. that's more local to you oh, yeah. or has a more a personal connection, I think most people would do that. Yeah, so I we, mean, like I, I'll go and I'll look for, like, say, Eagle Rock, right? And, right. And I'll always make sure to check the, the package dates because those big box stores are terrible about turning around beer in time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, 
but yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, it's it's always nice. I mean, you see Beechwood, you know, out on the shelves. But yeah, I think out of Long Beach, they're the only ones I've ever seen on the shelves anywhere outside of Long Beach. Right. I know Levy's sending beer to uh, like Amsterdam, but you know that's a that's a pet project, and that's that's for fun. Um, and that's I, great. I, I love him. He's crazy. Oh no, he no he's he's nuts. We we see him a lot. Um, when we were at, at, during the build out of this, I used to go to his place a lot because I didn't have a chair to sit on. <laughs> and I'd go over there and like do work on my, my laptop and have a beer sometimes. And he goes, you know, Sterling, what are you going to do when your place opens? I said, no, no, you got it all wrong. Like, you're going to hide at my place, and I'm going to hide at your place. Exactly. <laughs> and we're going to keep tabs on each other. Oh, uh, I always, sometimes when I get knee-deep in writing projects and I'm, I'm at home and I can't concentrate, what do I do? I go run to my pub right. or a brewery. And it turns out I go from being a guy who writes 100 words an hour to a guy who writes 2,000 words an hour. Well, I believe it. I 100% believe it. And actually, you touched on something with the pub atmosphere. Like, that kind of goes back to that front of house thing I was talking about mm-hmm. before. Like, you know, if you've traveled, you go to the UK in particular, there is a pub um, culture that yep. is so awesome. And that's what's been really, that's probably been my favorite part so far in the three weeks we've been open, is starting to watch regulars develop. Are you getting people crossing the street? I mean, I know so you got that is actually the senior arts colony. Oh, nice! It is. They're a bunch of cool grannies and grandpas, and they come in and they're like so thrilled that we're here. They've been super nice. They come in, they you know have a beer early in the day. They enjoy the food trucks. They like that the, that the block is active. Yeah. Um, but we're getting people that. So we're on Anaheim Street, which if you're counting street blocks would be 13th Street. Uh, downtown Long Beach really runs from kind of like first or second, like the water there. Mm-hmm. And most people would say that it starts to um, shift or, or not become downtown around 7th, even though it technically extends to 11th. Yeah. We've had people walk up, walk up from 4th Street yeah. and scooters and bicycles. And it's been incredible just to see who shows up and who's becoming regulars. Well, I, was gonna, I mean, in the L.A. sense of things... You know, like Beachwood and the Blendery and, and all that. I mean, even the Rock Bottom, I mean, isn't that far from here, you know, at least in L.A. terms. Oh, no, not at all. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like, yeah. let's go have another beer. No, it's awesome. All right. Now, I think we would have to be insane, you know, as we're sitting here drinking this Hellas, and it's, that's a really good Hellas, man. I'm, I'm almost <laughs> done with it. It's like not even, not even thinking about it, just picking it up and drinking it. We would be remiss not to mention the uh, the brew rig that you have because not a lot of places have this. It's becoming more common, but not a lot of places have it. You're talking about the mash filter. I'm talking about the mash filter. How's that Hellas again? It is fan freaking tastic. Any tannins in there? No, I'm surprised. See, there you go. I'm surprised because other places that I know have mash filters. Maybe it's maybe it's a perceptual bias thing on me, but on some of the other ones, I get tannins. Out of it's them. time, temperature, and pH. Yep. That's everything. Um, we identified really early on, um, well, I can't say that. From the beginning, we struck out to identify challenges in other breweries. And as I mentioned before, I had my own business. So kind of in that time when we were vetting this idea, I specifically would take one or two weeks off at a time and go work at other breweries. Mm-hmm. And I didn't brew because I knew what brewing was. And that's easy relative to everything else. Making beer is the easy, fun part of this entire operation. Yeah, it's learning like how, to, how you do the packaging, how you do all the cleaning. How, how do you clean it. every keg? Yeah. So I spent a lot of time mopping, cleaning kegs, scrubbing things, milling in, anything I could do. Oh, and the brewers must have loved you. Oh, yeah. No. Like, you know, I remember I flew to, uh, to Virginia to go brew with the guys over at Ocelot. And I was like, hey, 
can I clean some kegs? They're like, do you really want to do that? Like, you're our guest here. Like, the, the owner's a friend. I was like, no, I, I want to clean some kegs. He's like, all right, buddy, your funeral. <laughs> so I cleaned, I don't know, 100 kegs on a fully manual keg washer, which if you've never used one, like, there's like a dozen valves in front of you. And if you turn the wrong one, you get uh, bad things happen. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, you can, I could totally ruin someone's reputation by running this keg washer wrong, right? And yep. it's like, oh, well, you got to open this valve a third of the way to clean the spear, and then you open it all the way to clean the shell on this whole thing. So I, I tried to operate as much equipment as I could and try to understand, like, what are the portions of the job that medium stink, really stink, and are really a pleasure. So when we built this place, we looked at all of the equipment purchases really carefully to make sure we made smart decisions. Mm-hmm. And being in California, one thing that was really important to us was sustainability. So the filter for us is about kind of two or three things, depending on the way you slice it. We use a fraction of the water mm-hmm. of what everyone else uses. Um, everything in brewing, if you're using water, it's usually heated, so we're mm-hmm. using a lot less energy. Uh, we do see some benefit on the malt side in terms mm-hmm. of efficiency, but that's not really the deal breaker for us. Uh, and the fun part is we are able to use under-modified or unmodified grains. Yep. So the wheat we made yesterday, it was about, it was, I want to say 50 or 60% wheat. And about a quarter of that was raw, mm-hmm. and we don't have a rice hole in the house. Well, and so just to back up, because not everybody knows what a mash filter is. I mean, so we think of like traditional brewing, which is what most of us homebrewers are doing, right? You know, do gravity separation of the wort through some sort of straining mechanism so that you know it flows out around the grain. But a mash filter works differently. Yeah. So the explanation I've been giving on my tours, which I'm kind of tuning up, is we make a grain tea, and the traditional method is to separate it with a colander. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the separation is smooth and easy, and sometimes it's a nightmare. And then you've got beers like 10 Hour that get named after it. What we do instead is we basically make a thin mash. We pump it into what is basically an enormous plate frame filter. Mm-hmm. And then each between each uh, chamber is a bladder. So we pump it in there. We vorl off for five minutes. We send that to the kettle, and then we sparge. And at the very end, we actually inflate those bladders and we inflate them to like 40 PSI, and that squeezes the grain that's inside there. And so what we're seeing in terms of recovery is we don't have that, you know, if, if you look at most sparging at most breweries, you know, you usually end up with a, a one-to-one volume on top mm-hmm. of the sparge just pushing everything through. We don't have that. And in a 1,000-pound grist load, we're losing around 10 to 11 gallons yep. of water. Well, and... Do you guys hammer mill the... No, we don't hammer mill, okay. actually. So there, there, a lot of places do hammer mill, which is basically they turn the, the flour into flour. Yeah. And, but it's it's very cool to see because out the other side, I mean, you know, most of us, we're used to doing grains out and you, you've got essentially hot, wet goop. Right. And then after a mash filter, because of that pressing, you know, it comes out in some of those places, just completely bone dry. Yeah, we're bananas. I I call it damp cardboard. Uh, If you look at the way it looks, it it, it reminds me of, if you like took a piece of it and put it in the sun for 20 minutes, it would basically become those little dog cookies you can buy at some breweries. It's right there. Well, I think you just hit on another aspect of the business plan. Oh, the recyclability? Well, no, making dog biscuits out of of your... (laughs) Oh, I mean, there's a lot we can... It's funny because we were talking about that yesterday with the the porter we made. I was like, oh, this could make some really good dog biscuits. Um, But for now, it's going to make some cows very happy. Uh, We send everything out to a local farmer, and, uh, you know, they they want the yeast, they want the trube, they want everything but the hops, basically. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, there's a lot of protein, a lot of vitamins and all that. Exactly. Um, And, in fact, on one of the last podcasts, we were talking actually about uh, wheat middlings 
you know, which is the leftover from the flower process, and mm-hmm. talking about, oh, yeah, that becomes animal feed, too. You know, it's like there's so much of this this sort of waste product that ends up going into the further down the food chain. Oh, and it's funny you mentioned that, a um, bit of a tangent, but the I, I bought a, a snack the other day, and it was ta- it, on the package it talked about how it was made out of upcycled bananas. Okay. And they said, we're, we're eliminating food waste. And I th- thought to myself, there is almost no food waste on the manufacturing level. Those baby carrots you bought, mm-hmm. the balance of them became carrot juice or yep. something else. Uh, and it's the same here. Like, you try to stretch everything as far as you can. Well, and, and even baby carrots themselves started off as a saving technique. Like, oh, we got all these ugly carrots that people right. aren't going to buy. Precisely. So we'll carve them into something they'll eat. And charge more. Yeah. Um, so uh, beyond just, the, like, the differences in efficiency and whatnot, or, or differences in energy use and differences in water use, what do you? What other impacts do you see in the brewing process? What, did, you, did you have to tweak anything when you when you started doing mash we, had to, we had to make some adjustments, but fewer than you may think. Um, for us, because we're not using a hammer mill, we so we we have a single roller mm-hmm. or a single pair roller, and getting the mill gap right was a huge deal for us. Uh, we there's only one other mash filter domestically that I'm aware of that is using a roller mill, and that's mm-hmm. Crux up in Bend. Okay, yeah. Um, and I spent a lot of time on the phone with Larry up there, you know, chewing through some ideas and what they're doing and getting the mill gap just right was really critical. And we actually adjust our mill gap according mm-hmm. to what we're milling. Right. So we have one setting for most of our pale malts and we have a different setting for our dark malts or roast malts. Um, and getting that right was critical because we had one of our early batches, like, you know, this is like you plan, you plan, you plan, and then you think on your feet. Mm-hmm. I definitely didn't have like 200 pounds of golden naked oats go straight through the mill unscathed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was fun. Um, yeah. But for the most part, we see we do get a particularly vigorous boil. So mm-hmm. our boil times are a little shorter than normal, which is nice. And our hop utilization is a little higher. But nothing really dramatic. That's been kind of nice. Like we've things have been pretty smooth in that regard. Well, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, once you get out the other side of the mash filter, you'd hope, barring a, barring a sort of pH thing that you had to watch for, that you'd be perfectly fine. It's like just a different form of extract. Yeah, pr- yeah precisely. So all of our we 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 are 100% RO. All the salts go into the mash. Uh, the sparge is done with 100% RO, so we don't have any pH concerns there. Once it gets into the kettle, everything after that process is perfectly normal. We just happen to have a calandria, so we get the, the more vigorous boil. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, a nice little hat. Yeah, the China hat. Yep. Yeah. So, all right. Anything else that people should know about the, about the brewery? Why they should come down to Long Beach to come visit you guys? Because we'd love to have them here. Um, I, you know, I think it's going to be a fun process for us. And, you know, the part that, as I mentioned before, it's really gratifying to see new people come in the door and to talk to them, engage with them, and, you know, really listen. So we've got ideas of what we want to do, and mm-hmm. we want to listen to others. Um, you know, we're, no, no brewery is an island, mm-hmm. and uh, I think our capability to connect with customers, that was the part about the tap room that makes me most excited. Well, and I think with as many breweries as we have nowadays and people worrying about, is there a bubble? Is there not a bubble? Is there, you know, what's happening with in terms of being able to, you know, grow your brewery? I think... It's it's extraordinarily paramount that any brewery be engaged with their community. You can't exist without them. Well, and something you touched on there is the you know the bubble factor, and I, people talk about it all the time. I'm actually astonished how many patrons come in and say that right to your face. It's like, oh, thanks, that makes me feel real good right now. <laughs> hey, yeah, do, do, do you feel really happy that you just spent a bunch of money when everybody's talking about this whole thing's going to collapse? Right. I, I can't believe. It. Thanks, buddy. Um, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is bad beer. 
Yep. That's that's all that's all I worry about is I go to you know we've all been to a place and you you know I'm sure Drew you experienced this you know you're you're a known guy you walk in someone serves you a beer and you're like wow what do I do with this oh yeah and that's the most terrifying part of all yeah I've I've learned to be able to walk around corners yeah um, so bad beer is what is what worries me the most I'm not worried about brewery count I don't think of that as being any different than the count of any other type of business out there. I, I usually use the example of pizza restaurants. Right. How many pizzerias do we have in the country? Right. <laughs> and there's good and there's bad and there's everyone, everyone in between, but with craft beer, we just got to make killer beer all the time and stay in touch. Well, I think, speaking of killer beer, you know, we're pretty much through these helluses. I think it's time for us to go downstairs and see what other killer offerings you have. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Man, they hit the ground running, didn't they? Yeah, they did. All right, come on. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you know, a mash filter is one of those things that seems pretty brave and kind of weird, but as you point out, we're seeing them more and more often these days. Yeah, exactly. And I'll be curious to see what happens with, you know, how the mash filter technology goes. Uh, I would still be curious to see if anybody can ever, uh, well, figure out a way to bring it to the homebrew market. I imagine somebody's going to at some point in time because everybody's trying to do everything to mimic what they do at the uh, at the professional level, I'm not exactly sure we need one. But <laughs> that's what cool. I was gonna say. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's like, why? Why do I need one at the homebrew level? You don't, but it's fun and it's another toy, <laughs> another piece of equipment to break down, keep in repair, and clean. Exactly, as with all things in life. But no, again, get yourself down to Trademark Brewing Company. Enjoy their beer. I've been through their list a couple of times now and i don't think i've had a beer that i wasn't happy with i mean i may have had some that weren't necessarily to my taste but i never had one there yet that has any sort of flaw or anything that puts me off to having more of their beers right on man that's great so i guess it's time to uh wrap things up and move on huh yep it's time for us to do the things that we do to get you on the road all right we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at the quick tip, uh, something other than beer, and some questions and answers. So stick around. We'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back. It's time to read a question. Actually, it's a couple questions all rolled into one and see what we can come up with for answers. And yep. uh, I'm going to let Drew do the talking here. 
Yes, just one question this week, and this one comes from Richard Potter. He says, I've slowly been making my way through the back catalog of your podcast as I have a 45-minute commute each way from where I live in Worcestershire to where, uh, to work in Warwickshire. Jeez, buddies. Yes, I, I can talk. Uh, there are a couple of questions that have come to mind while listening to recent episodes. Um, firstly, based on what you've been talking about recently with yeast cleanup, i.e. the fact that fermentation needs to be active for cleanup to happen, I've started wondering about the amount of time I leave beer and fermenter. I have an eye spindle digital hydrometer, which is similar to tilt, but a DIY, DIY thing. And you can find the instructions online for the eye spindle, by the way. Um, so I can monitor my fermentation in semi-real time. Most of my beers hit a stable terminal gravity after three to four days. I know traditional wisdom is to give the beer two weeks in the fermenter to allow for cleanup. But assuming it is already sat for three days of final gravity, do you think the extra week will give it any benefit? And would this be greater than the potential risk of oxygenation? I use an HDPE uh, fast ferment, so a plastic fermenter. I don't currently have the ability to cold crash other than once the beer is kegged, which I believe would normally take up some of this two weeks. I don't normally have time in the evening to keg a beer, so it ends up either being one week or two weeks in the fermenter. So, Denny, thoughts? Uh, yeah, there's no point in leaving the beer there once fermentation has finished and there are no more fermentables. Uh, you know, the yeast can't do any cleanup unless it's got something to work on, so there have to be fermentables. If there are no fermentables, then it's time to move on. Yeah, and truthfully, though, I don't think if you don't have the time to keg during the week, I, I think you're fine just leaving it there. I mean, after all, I've left beers for a while. Yeah, and I have too. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, probably it won't make any difference in terms of improving your beer, but at the same time, it probably won't do a lot of harm either. So, what, yeah, of course, the first thing to do is taste the beer. If you're still getting you know flavors of things like acetaldehyde or diastole, then maybe consider waiting or adding some sugar or something to get the yeast going again. But yeah, uh, for the most part, you, if, you'll probably be fine. Yeah, I mean, really, if those are still there and it's uh, already at terminal gravity, then probably what you'll need to do is croison it and act, add some actively fermenting work to get things moving again. There you go. And now the second question, he says, the second question might be a bit of a first world problem. My two local homebrew shops don't offer U.S. two-row, only Maris Otter. In the episode about Drew's birthday beer, Danny said he didn't like the character that Maris Otter brings to an IPA, but I've never had a chance to try anything different. Is there something I could do, such as mixing Maris Otter and Pilsner 50-50, to get closer to the character of a U.S. two-row? And so, Denny, why don't you reiterate why you don't like Maris Otter? I just, it has a, a flavor to it that is not what I'm going for when I make an American-style beer. It's strictly personal preference. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of people out there, like you, who like it a lot. Uh, but I think that, you know, you might find it real interesting to try uh, – Cutting the, the Maris Otter, you know, maybe like 30 to 50% with some Pils malt and mm -hmm. see what you think. Yeah, and, and my my IPAs are almost always Maris Otter and American Pale or American Pils 50-50. So uh, I think it works very well. And, of course, as Danny pointed out, not everybody's a fan of Maris Otter. We just had the series of questions that we're going to get back to about the listener who gets a peanut and piney flavor from uh, Maris Otter. So there's lots more to dig in there. Yeah, really. All right, and Richard continues, so this is the reason why there's only one uh, piece of Q&A today. It says, my final one is feedback on a feedback, uh, feedback squared. I've had an issue with a few of my kegged hoppy beers of an unpleasant, flabby bitterness. It's not bad enough to make the beers undrinkable, but I was always left with a feeling that they weren't as bright and 
Close your ears, Denny. Juicy, as I hope. <laughs> I also often found that the first half pint or so had a chemically taste to it. I recently started doing three or four bottles of each beer I've made for my mother-in-law with the remaining volume in the fermenter after I'd filled a keg. And when I tried one, I had noticed that it didn't have the same issue. I've read various stories of people accidentally dumping a batch of beer on top of a gallon of Starzan without issue, so I had always just pushed sanitizer out of the keg with CO2, leaving a tiny puddle of Starzan and a load of foam, which I assumed wouldn't cause any major issues. When I heard the comments about the impact of a small amount of sanitizer in the keg, unpleasant bitterness, and a chemical flavor, I got an instant light bulb as it perfectly matched what I'd been getting. I'm kegging a brew dog trashy blonde either this weekend or next weekend. That's my first question. So I will try rinsing the keg with boiling water and hope that this solves the problem. So good to see somebody picking up a piece of feedback that we had earlier in the show. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people who were saying, hey, you know, you got star sand will do some impact on your beer like this. I tend to just push the star sand out with the CO2, just like what you were just talking about, Richard. I've not had any problems with it. Maybe I'm lucky or maybe I'm just not sensitive to the flavor that you guys are getting. Yeah, man, I have never had any problems with it either, and I have never talked to anybody who had a problem they could attribute to that. Uh, you know, think, there are a lot of people doing that method. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, is worthy of testing. So that's our one question with multiple questions, parts one through three. Yeah, <laughs> there will be a quiz later. And now I think it's time that we get a quick tip out. Okay, and I've got the quick tip this week. And it comes from a conversation Drew and I had uh, from a beer tasting. I sent some beers down to him. You guys will probably be hearing that coming up soon. He mentioned that both of them seemed a little bit undercarbonated, and better carbonation uh, would probably uh, benefit the the mouthfeel and the, even the flavor of the beers. And I had to sadly agree with him. And, it, you know, I, I made the uh, confession that I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to carbonation when I keg. I uh, I go, okay, the beer got about to this. That means I need to set my regulator about here and I'll just leave it or I might shake it a little bit and then leave it. But basically, I play pretty fast and loose with carbonation. And I came to the realization that uh, after I put all that time into making the beer, spending a few more minutes to get the carbonation right uh, would really be a, a benefit and uh, make it so that I hadn't wasted the time that I'd spent up until then. So my quick tip is my resolution that I'm going to pay more attention to carbonation. And if you haven't been, I hope you will too. Yeah, it turns out carbonation provides a lot of benefit to your beer. So... Pay attention to it. It's not just for getting the beer out of the keg anymore. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, of course, as always, we're going to close up with something other than beer. And I've got two things. They're both food-related, uh, one of which is you know kind of inspired the other one. So there's a, a great new YouTube channel out there of this little uh, Mexican lady, uh, Dona Angela, uh, who has started a YouTube channel with her kids helping her with it. Uh, and it's called uh, From My Ranch to Your Kitchen in Spanish. Uh, and I'm not even going to attempt the Spanish because, boy, I can barely do English. And what's really great is YouTube does provide English subtitles, but she lives on this ranch, and it's all about the home cooking that she does to feed the family and feed everybody out there on the ranch. And, you know, so she walks you through all these great little family specialties that she does on a wood-burning stove that fires up a plancha and you know, and you watch what she's doing, and it's like the simplest stuff in the world, but it looks so damn delicious that I just want to reach through the screen and eat it. <laughs> I, 
have to admit, man, it looks really good. Uh, I have not been able to watch much of it because I get too hungry when I do. Yeah, and and she's not using anything complicated. It's nothing, you know. I think the the biggest piece of gear that she has besides a molehekte is a blender and a couple of pots <laughs> and you know making fresh tortillas right there and everything else. It's just it, yeah, exactly. It makes you nice and hungry. And as a perfect solution to your hunger, I really recommend that people go out and look up an old San Francisco diner special uh, called Joe's Special, and it's essentially a mix of ground beef. And eggs and spinach and onion and a couple of different herbs and spices. And it's a just the kind of thing that you can throw together super quickly. And boy, is it satisfying, particularly if you've been drinking, which is exactly where that dish comes from. <laughs> and, then if cool. you're, and then if you're me, you know, you can go on a long rant about the history of diners here in the U.S., but a good number of diners in the U.S. were Greek-owned. Now, supposedly Joe Special came from an Italian-owned diner, but a good number of the Diners around here in the U.S. are Greek-owned, at least historically. And so when I make Joe's Special, I also throw in some uh, feta uh, just to kind of give it a little extra oomph. Uh, that's so, a good idea, man. We used to have a restaurant here in town that made uh, made that, and uh, they didn't use feta. And I think that'd be really good. Yeah, it's just an old-school classic dish. Go look up Joe's Special. And I'm telling you, it's ground beef, eggs, and spinach. And it's just tasty. Yeah, and there's lots of variations, but those are the basics that are always there. Yep. All right. It's time to get out of here and go have some food. (laughs) That's right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I spend time hanging out on a bunch of different beer forums, uh, mostly the AHA discussion forum. You can find Drew on the homebrewing subreddit or the Slack homebrewing channel. And if you uh, have any ideas for topics, recipes, experiments, you want to ask a question, or you want to rant and rave and just tell us what idiots we are, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can email each of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. And you can always go to our website, experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.